Welcome, everybody. My name is Makal Nasrani, and this is Islam for Christians, episode 41, Biblical Figures in Islam, part four, Moses. We left off last time with Joseph entering Egypt, which means now it's time for the Israelis to leave Egypt. So we're going out of the book of Genesis and into the book of Exodus. And at the beginning, the um, the story of Moses in the Judeo-Christian version, you know, in the in the Bible, is pretty much the same as that of the Islamic version. But as you'll see, it diverges greatly at certain points. And later on, you'll see a, a story from the Quran that does not feature in the Bible anywhere at all. Um, but just to set things up, and you know, as a refresher for those of you who don't who don't remember. Here's the biblical preamble to the story of Moses. This is the very beginning of uh, the book of Exodus. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful, so they multiplied greatly. They increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land of Egypt was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war were to break out, they will join our enemies. They will fight against us and leave the country. So they, meaning the Egyptians, they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and they spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and they worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Now, the Quran doesn't go over any of that, particularly the sort of Israeli, you know, bookkeeping, record-keeping function there at the very beginning. But still, it's pretty safe to consider most of that to be part of the Islamic tradition as well. After all, it bridges the gap between two revered Muslims, Joseph and Moses. And it's usually a safe assumption that major Old Testament details are pretty much Islamic, unless declared otherwise, either in the Quran, in the Hadith, or by the later work of some um, Islamic scholars. Now, like most major biblical figures, Moses is considered to be a great Islamic prophet, a very great prophet, actually, a law-giving prophet, the best kind of prophet. In Arabic, he is known as Musa ibn Imra, Moses, son of Amram. 
And in Islam, Moses was given the Torah the same way that Muhammad was given the Quran. And for those not familiar with this term, the Torah is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, in Christian circles, particularly among clergy, it tends to be known as the Pentateuch, and that's Greek for five scrolls. And until extremely recently in Christian history, it was always assumed that Moses wrote the Torah, or the Pentateuch, and many still hold that belief, although modern literary critics beg to differ and hypothesize multiple authors for these books. And they also say that these were written long after Moses during the Babylonian exile. Now, I'm not going to get into that debate, but I will say that the Islamic perspective is a combination of both of these views. Because from the Islamic perspective, the uncorrupted Torah did exist, but no longer exists in our time. And Moses was the original author. But the original Torah given to Moses is lost to history. But still, the whole story of Moses and Pharaoh and leading the Israelites out of Egypt, it's pretty much the same in Islam as it is in other religions. Of course, the Islamic stories, as they tend to be, are a bit harder to find. And the Moses stories in particular are just scattered all over the place. But when you do piece them together, they tell a very similar story. So here it is. <laughs> Let me, um, this is the, the Islamic story of Musa, or Moses. Moses is born, and he's in danger because of a crazy pharaoh bent on infanticide. But God is ahead of the game, giving instruction to Moses' mother, along with a promise that he will be a great prophet. This is Surah 28, verse 7. And we inspired the mother of Moses, saying, Suckle him, and when thou fearest for him, then cast him into the river and fear not nor grieve. Lo, we shall bring him back unto thee, and shall make him one of our messengers. So even in the beginning, from the very start of Moses' life, God is involved in the story in a very direct way. And like in the Joseph story, God is directing this thing from the beginning. So a woman named Asiya, who was Pharaoh's wife, takes Moses in. And she convinces Pharaoh to make him his son, unbelievably enough. And also, Moses' sister happened to be one of the queen's servants, and she recommended someone to suckle the baby Moses. And that person was Moses' real mother. So Moses was raised as an Egyptian, but when he grew, God blessed him with religious knowledge. Then, like in the Bible, Moses kills an Egyptian while defending an Israelite. Word of this gets back to Pharaoh, so Moses flees northeast into the desert. It's kind of a preview of things to come. Moses finds an oasis, and he helps two women kind of elbow into a crowded water hole to get water for their sheep, and it ends up landing him a job. He worked as a shepherd for 10 years or so, marrying one of the women, 
but eventually he became restless. So he takes his new family back to Egypt, but before he even gets there, uh, he runs into the famous burning bush. Um, so he sees this burning bush, and like in the Bible, he takes off his shoes and all that, being on holy ground, and he is instructed to worship God and God alone. God then blesses him with the ability to perform various miracles with a stick and his cloak. And then God confers prophethood upon him. The rest of the Quranic account of the burning bush story is really quite short, so I'll go ahead and read it here. This is the Mustafa Katab translation, which I think gives this narrative extremely clearly in modern English. This is Surah 20, verses 14 to 48. It is truly I, I am Allah. There is no God worthy of worship except me. So worship me alone and establish prayer for my remembrance. The hour is sure to come. My will is to keep it hidden so that every soul may be rewarded according to their efforts. So do not let those who disbelieve in it and follow their desires distract you from it, or you will be doomed. Allah added, And what is that in your right hand, O Moses? Moses replied, It is my staff. I lean on it, and with it I beat down branches for my sheep, and I have other uses for it. Allah said, Throw it down, O Moses. So he did. Then behold, it became a serpent, slithering. Allah said, Take it, and have no fear. We will return it to its former state. And put your hand under your armpit. It will come out shining, white, unblemished, as another sign, so that we may show you some of our greatest signs. Go to Pharaoh for he has truly transgressed all bounds. Moses prayed, My Lord, uplift my heart for me, and make my task easy, and remove the impediment from my tongue, so people may understand my speech, and grant me a helper from my family. Aaron, my brother, strengthen me through him, and let him share my task, so that we may glorify you much and remember you much, for truly you have always been overseeing us. Allah responded, All that you requested has been granted, O Moses, and surely we had shown you favor before, when we inspired your mother with this. Put him into a chest, then put it into the river. The river will wash it ashore, and he will be taken by Pharaoh, an enemy of mine and his and I blessed you with lovability from me, O Moses, so that you would be brought up under my watchful eye. Remember when your sister came along and proposed, shall I direct you to someone who will nurse him? So we reunited you with your mother so that her heart would be put at ease, and she would not grieve. Later, you killed a man by mistake, but we saved you from sorrow, as well as other tests we put you through. Then you stayed for a number of years among the people of Midian. Then you came here as a predestined, O Moses, and I have selected you for my service. Go forth, you and your brother, with my signs, and never falter in remembering me. Go, 
both of you, to Pharaoh, for he has truly transgressed all bounds. Speak to him gently, so perhaps he may be mindful of me or fearful of my punishment. They both pleaded, Our Lord, we fear that he may be quick to harm us or act tyrannically. Allah reassured them, Have no fear, for I am with you, hearing and seeing. So go to him and say, Indeed, we are both messengers from your Lord. So let the children of Israel go with us, and do not oppress them. We have come to you with a sign from your Lord, and salvation will be for whoever follows the right guidance. It has indeed been revealed to us that the punishment will be upon whoever denies the truth and turns away. Now, that's a pretty standard burning bush narrative. Nothing super controversial there. Well, with one exception. If you go back to the very beginning of the passage I just read, to the very first line I read, Surah 20, verse 14. Let me read this several times with different translations. So as you hear this, you can pay special attention to how the sentence is introduced. You know, to how God introduces himself. So the first one is the one you just heard, Dr. Mustafa Khattab. It is truly I, I am Allah. There is no God worthy of worship except me. So worship me alone and establish prayer for my remembrance. Now the second one, this is Marmaduke Pickthall. Lo, I, even I, am Allah. There is no Allah save me. So serve me and establish worship for my remembrance. And the third one, this is Yusuf Ali. Verily, I am Allah. There is no God but I. So serve thou me only and establish regular prayer for celebrating my praise. And then the fourth one, this is the Sahih International. Indeed, I am Allah. There is no deity except me. So worship me and establish prayer for my remembrance. Okay, so now I'll go through those translations one more time, but just on the very, very, very first part. So I'm just going to read all four of these in a row. It is truly I. I am Allah. And then, lo, I, even I, am Allah. And then, verily, I am Allah. And then, indeed, I am Allah. Now, those are very different, every single one of them. And there's a, there's a good reason the translators have such a hard time with this, because there are so many ways to read that. You know, in one reading, basically, it's two versions of the word I. Now, the Arabic word for I is ena, and you know the word Allah. And so the Arabic sounds like inai ena Allah. Or for somebody much better with Arabic, it sounds like this. Now, one translation you didn't see, 
that I'd like to add could um, an alternate translation could also be I, I am God. But that same word that is translated as I can also mean many other fragmentary words like behold or verily or truly. And that's why you see that in those translations. And when it's that meaning, Anna starts with an E sound, I believe, instead of an E sound. So, verily, I am Allah. There's a good case for that, too. You know, the first Anna starts with the E sound in the passage you just heard in the Arabic. Inai and Allah. Now, that could also alternately be translated as that I am God, as in tell them that I am God. That phrase is just so loaded in ambiguity and mystery in the Arabic. And there's good reason for that mysterious quality. Now, here's the payoff. Why did I give you all that Arabic? Here's the point of telling you all of that. So the reason that's so important when we're, you know, particularly when we're talking about the Islamic version of Moses is what I was just giving you is the Quranic version of God calling himself, I am, which is one of the most powerful verses in the Old Testament, at least to me. It just makes me shudder when I read it still. Even in English, it's super powerful. It, it just is. Um, and I doubt it's just me. A quick Bible lesson here. In the Bible, God asked Moses what his name is, because he's about to go to Egypt to talk to his people. And they're going to ask which God he is talking about. And God gives the cheekiest response in the history of the world to this. And it's so great. He says, I am who I am. That's his reply, meaning his name as far as he can actually be named, is I am. Now, this is where the word Yahweh comes from, by the way. The Hebrew Eya is the first person, and Yahweh is spoken in the third person, meaning he will be. So Yahweh, or he will be, conveys the timelessness of God, and I'll grant it's spectacular, but I actually prefer the first one, which was I am. It's simple and condensed, and yet as infinite as possible. And that's probably my bias as an English speaker. You know, and that's why I like it so much. It works so well in English, like almost to a ridiculous, almost unfathomable degree. Because I am is the linguistic version of the Big Bang. It's the shortest sentence in the English language, and yet it can expand into an infinite universe of other words and phrases. I am is the bedrock of the universe, and it also contains all of life's possibilities at the same time. And it kind of blows me away that something that amazing can exist in an English translation. Considering Moses talked to the burning bush, you know, at a time, maybe maybe even 2,000 years before English even existed. Now, the Arabic has a ton to live up to there. 
but it also does pretty well. The word Allah basically means the God. You know, the in Arabic is El, and Elah is God, like the lowercase God. So El Elah, you know, El Elah, El Elah, Allah, it eventually sounds like Allah. Um, now, Allah doesn't, at first glance, have the expansive totality of meaning that Yahweh has. But if you look at it closer, yeah, actually, it kind of does. Because if Allah is the God, and we're talking about the lone creator God, the God isn't much different than saying, I am. Because after all, God created the universe, and the world, and the people, and whatever else you can stick the word the in front of. So now we'll go back to the Islamic story of Moses. So this God called I Am sends Moses to Pharaoh, armed with a couple of miracles. Moses eventually ends up in a magic contest in Pharaoh's court. But, of course, his magic is real, rather than the fancy illusions of Pharaoh's magicians. So Moses wins the contest. Rather than considering that Moses may be right, Pharaoh just got angry, real angry. It's classic cognitive dissonance. You know, his brain simply could not handle the truth. Or perhaps more accurately, his ego couldn't handle the truth, and it scrambled his brain. So he told the people the contest was rigged and doubled down on oppression. But in the Quranic story, Pharaoh actually gets an early warning from a family member. Uh, who was apparently a closeted believer in Allah. Now, this family member warns Pharaoh that his actions against this god could only mean calamity for Egypt. So Moses eventually gives Pharaoh the exact same warning. So then come the plagues. First a drought, then the locusts, then the lice, then the frogs. Then the Nile was turned to blood. And then finally, the Israelites snuck away in the night to make their escape. Wait, what? Wait, yeah. For those of you who know the Bible story, or who have seen it through the Charlton Heston version, there is definitely something missing. Something huge. What do you mean they snuck away in the night? What about the killing of the firstborn? The angel of death? The original Passover, it's not there. Not a word. So what was the point of the plagues? Couldn't they have snuck away in the night before all of that? Is Islam saying that the plague of the firstborn is a lie? Now, the answer is probably not. I'm 90% sure that Passover can be called a Muslim belief. It's not in the Quran or the Hadith. But Muslim scholars have quoted Jewish sources on it in their Quranic commentaries, so it's there, kind of. And again, that's part of the challenge of Islamic storytelling. Just because it's not there doesn't mean it's not Islamic, particularly if it's part of a very well-known story everyone in the community would have already known, you know, especially a Jewish community like Medina. So think of the gospel. Does it recap everything from the previous scripture? 
No, it doesn't. There's a whole lot of knowledge assumed. You know, the same for the Quran. There is, of course, one key difference to keep in mind, though. Jesus confirmed the authenticity of the existing scripture. The Quran does not do that. And the Quran leaves out a few other plagues as well. But again, that doesn't mean they didn't happen. Uh, the Quran is often telling a sermon, not a story. And it may have just been wanting to get to the point as soon as possible. You know, and so the key thing here is what is the point of that sermon? The point of that homily is that God wins always. And that leads us to the Quran's version of Passover, uh, which is the time the Red Sea passed over the Egyptian army, so to speak. Moses hits the sea with his staff, it splits, and the Israelites cross. The Egyptians follow, and then the water crashes in on them. So I guess it didn't entirely pass over them. It crashed in on them. And Pharaoh's with that group. And as he's drowning, Pharaoh attempts a deathbed conversion. The Quran states explicitly that God rejected Pharaoh's sudden faith. And while you can't say that the Bible pulled any punches on Pharaoh, compared to the Bible, the Quran is absolutely ruthless with God's treatment of Pharaoh. So God hurls the Red Sea onto Pharaoh, rejects his dying conversion to Islam as his lungs filled with water, and then hurled his body onto the shore. And then this. This is from Surah 10, uh, verse 92. Today, we will preserve your corpse so that you may become an example for those who come after you. And surely most people are heedless of our examples. So in the end, God doesn't just get his vengeance on Pharaoh in all the words mentioned. He tells Pharaoh directly, today we will preserve your corpse so that you may become an example for those who come after you. And surely most people are heedless of our examples. That's a spectacular finish for a revenge tale, isn't it? But... Perhaps God should have had the Israelites take that corpse with them as an explicit example of what happens to those who defy God, because as soon as they ran into the first idol worshipers they could find, the first ones outside Egypt, these people asked Moses to make them an idol. Now, he refused, obviously, because he's Moses. Um, but God provided for the Israelites. Still, he sent them manna, he sent them quails, still they complained. And they also wouldn't fight for the land that God ordered them to conquer. So they wandered in the desert for 40 years. Moses goes up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, putting Aaron in charge, and just like the Bible. But the people quickly devolve into idol worship, and in the Quranic account, they do this despite Aaron's constant warnings. So Aaron comes off a little better. The Quranic Aaron never helped them to actually build the golden calf. But still, there was some responsibility on his part because he was in charge. 
so Moses comes down from the mountain and he sees what's going on and he completely blows his top. He just goes nuts because, you know, think like Jesus in the temple, seeing the money changers style of angry. That's what was going on here. He's just completely apoplectic and understandably so. You know, put yourself in his position for a second. Imagine what you're seeing. You took these people out of Egypt. You showed them the power of God. You warned them constantly. Then you take a small break from their stupidity and whining to go up to a mountain to receive holy orders from the creator of the universe. And then you come down to see them directly defying the almighty God and choosing to worship a stupid cow statue instead. There are just so many reasons to be furious here. The blasphemy, the faithlessness, the ingratitude, the idiocy, the inability to process basic pattern recognition, and probably all of those things at once. Would you be mad enough to kill somebody in that situation? So what happens, this is the Quranic story, Moses grabs Aaron by the beard and begins to interrogate him. But Aaron explains that they were going to kill him if he intervened while they were doing this wicked thing. Eventually, the blame falls on a man named Samiri. And Samiri is exiled. But Samiri's followers actually got a harsher punishment than he did. You know, they were mostly killed allegedly 70,000 of them. Uh, this is from the Tafsir of Ibn Kathir. Um, tafsir is basically a Quranic interpretation and commentary. And this is from Surah 2, verse 54, him talking about that. And incidentally, this is the cow in the Surah of the Cow, if you've ever wondered. But anyway, this is Ibn Kathir talking about this passage. The quote, Allah ordered Musa to command his people to kill each other. He ordered those who worship the calf to sit down and those who do not worship the calf to stand holding knives in their hands. When they started killing them, a great darkness suddenly overcame them. After the darkness lifted, they had killed 70,000 of them. Those who were killed among them were forgiven, and those who remained alive were also forgiven. End quote. So it's not all bad. I mean, even those who were killed, at least they were forgiven. You know, so they did all things equal, you know, at least when they are there on judgment day, this is not going to be counted against them, which is a form of mercy. But still, that is old school. Old Testament justice. And it sounds a lot like the Roman practice of decimation, only this wasn't random. They had a very, very good reason to kill those people. Now, that is way more than the supposedly 3,000 people from the Bible. But the reason for the killing is still the same. From the Israelite perspective, they just were not in any position to anger God. They were wandering in the wilderness, and forsaking God pretty much meant that everyone would die, 
and they knew that. But the wandering would continue. And eventually Aaron died and Moses was on his own, leading a very ignorant and silly populace toward nothing in particular. In the Bible, Moses is barred from seeing the promised land for a rather small reason. Uh, if memory serves, it was because he hit a rock with a stick rather than talking to it, I, I think. Now, I think the Bible wants to give some reason, any reason, that this great, epic, prophetic figure never made it to the promised land. And I think that's why that story is there. You know, but I have not seen anything similar in the Islamic sources. Quranic prophets tend to be stronger in faith and less prone to human frailty than their biblical counterparts. So I found no mention of why Moses died in the desert. Now, I should preface that with saying I have not read every Hadith and Islamic tradition that exists. The sheer number is staggering. And I'm not a bearded guy who reads nothing but religious texts all day. You know, I got a job. But I'm not aware of any stories about why God did not allow Moses to enter the promised land. But really, that's just a footnote to Muslims. Because the important thing about Moses is the law he gave, the Torah. And in that mission, he succeeded. There is, however, a pretty fantastic story about how Moses did die. This comes from the Hadith, which is the sayings and deeds of the Prophet Muhammad. And it too mentions that Moses never quite made it to the Holy Land. The angel of death was sent to Moses, and when he came to Moses, Moses slapped him in the eye. The angel returned to his Lord and said, You have sent me to a slave who does not want to die. Allah said, Return to him and tell him to put his hand on the back of an ox, and for every hair that will come under it, he will be granted one year of life. And Moses said, O Lord, what will happen after that? Allah replied, Then death. Moses said, let it come now. Moses then requested Allah to let him die close to the sacred land, so much so that he would be at the distance of a stone's throw from it. Now, if you recall from earlier episodes, the Quranic Jacob never got to wrestle an angel, but the Quranic Moses got to smack one. I wish I could offer some insight on the whole ox hair part of this story. You know, if you're confused, I apologize, but I kind of am too, because I have no idea what that means, mainly because I'm not an expert on ox hair and I've never actually seen an ox myself. Or maybe I have seen an ox, I just didn't know it was an ox. Um, I actually can't pull up a visual in my mind of what an ox looks like. I think it's just like a big cow-looking thing, but bigger and pulling a plow, maybe. But here's my best guess. An ox probably has no hair on its back, thus no more years of life. And the story is a bit confusing because 
it's unclear when God stops talking to the angel and starts talking to Moses. But in the end, God is still talking to Moses, and he grants him his dying wish. Now it will be Joshua who will lead the Israelites into the promised land. And more than a thousand years later than Joshua, another person of that name, Yehoshua, or Yeshua, will bring the name of the one God out of Israel and to the entire world. And the Greeks called that person Jesus. But I want to include one more story about our dear departed Musa. And there is a story about Moses in the Quran with no biblical parallel. And it's a mysterious meeting between Moses and an even more mysterious na stranger named Khadir. That's K-H-I-D-R, Khadir, or Al-Khadir. Now, this name does not appear in the Quran. It's a proper name given later by Islamic commentators. It means the man in green. The name isn't really that important, though. The key thing to remember about Khadir, and thus the mystery, is that this person knows more than Moses knows. But he's not God. Maybe he's an angel, or a former prophet, or someone similar. We don't really know. But he meets up with Moses, and here's the Quranic story about that encounter. It's uh, Surah 18, verses 60 to 82. I'll use the Mustafa Khattab uh, again here. And remember when Moses said to his young assistant, I will never give up until I reach the junction of the two seas, even if I travel for ages. But when they finally reached the point where the seas met, they forgot their salted fish, and it made its way into the sea, slipping away wondrously. When they had passed further, he said to his assistant, Bring us our meal. We have certainly been exhausted by today's journey. He replied, Do you remember when we rested by the rock? That is when I forgot the fish. None made me forget to mention this except Satan, and the fish made its way into the sea miraculously. Moses responded, That is exactly what we were looking for. So they returned, retracing their footsteps. There they found a servant of ours, to whom we had granted mercy from us and enlightened with knowledge of our own. Moses said to him, May I follow you? provided that you teach me some of the right guidance you have been taught. He said, You certainly cannot be patient enough with me, and how can you be patient with what is beyond your realm of knowledge? Moses assured him, You will find me patient, Allah willing, and I will not disobey any of your orders. He responded, Then if you follow me, do not question me about anything until I myself clarify it for you. So they set out, but after they had boarded a ship, the man made a hole in it. Moses protested, Have you done this to drown its people? You have certainly done a terrible thing. He replied, Did I not say that you cannot have patience with me? 
Moses pleaded, excuse me for forgetting, and please do not be hard on me. So they proceeded until they came across a boy, and the man killed him. Moses protested, have you killed an innocent soul who killed no one? You have certainly done a horrible thing. He answered, did I not tell you that you cannot have patience with me? Moses replied, if I ever question you about anything after this, then do not keep me in your company, for by then I would have given you enough of an excuse. So they moved on until they came to the people of a town. They asked them for food, but the people refused to give them hospitality. And there they found a wall ready to collapse, so the man set it right. Moses protested, if you wanted, you could have demanded a fee for this. The man replied, This is the parting of our ways. I will explain to you what you could not bear patiently. As for the ship, it belonged to some poor people working at sea. So I intended to damage it, for there was a tyrant king ahead of them who seizes every good ship by force. And as for the boy, his parents were true believers, and we feared that he would pressure them into defiance and disbelief. So we hoped that their Lord would give them another child, more virtuous and caring, in his place. And as for the wall, it belonged to two orphan boys in the city, and under the wall was a treasure that belonged to them, and their father had been a righteous man. So your Lord willed that these children should come of age and retrieve their treasure as a mercy from your Lord. I did not do it all on my own. This is the explanation of what you could not bear patiently. You can hear echoes of Joseph in that story. God knows best. That's the theme. And this is, in my opinion, an even, well, not better, but a very different and more interesting theodicy story than Joseph, a more mysterious one. And the funny thing is, that story can be used just as easily by Jews and Christians, should anyone ask that age-old question, why do bad things happen to good people? Which is the question that theodicy addresses. Why would God scuttle a ship? Why would God kill a child? Why would God fix a wall for free for a clearly wicked people? Or I should say God didn't do these things. God's servant did these things. But there were good reasons. Because that ship was going to be commandeered. And because that boy was going to become a disbeliever and cause his parents grief and even disbelief themselves. So God will provide a new one. And because the treasure was just not ready to be revealed yet. And I particularly love that second one. Because the one with the child, if for no other reason <laughs> than this whole, this whole business about killing a child, you know, it's a shock to the system. Because it throws a very ancient value system into the face of the modern reader. It makes you uncomfortable, and it forces you to put yourself inside the moral code of the ancient world, 
which is fascinating. You know, honor your mother and father and all of that. Do this or Al-Khadir might kill you. And another really interesting aspect of this is the character of Moses in the story. You know, it's against the Islamic archetype in a lot of ways. I said earlier that Islamic prophets tend to come off better than their biblical counterparts. But this is an exception. Moses comes across like someone who still truly does not understand how things are. It's almost like Moses is representing the common man, while the green man is the prophet. The green man ends up leaving Moses because he is impatient, meaning Moses, the man who actually talked to God, can't quite keep up with this person in green. And that makes me think Moses might actually be incidental to the story itself. You know, like a character was needed and Moses was chosen for this particular sermon. Because really, this could have been done with any other well-known figure, or even a random person. Like, the character of Moses, the qualities of Moses, don't really play a part in the story, except maybe to say that here is this grandiose great prophet, and even he doesn't see this. And in a way, that's appropriate. This is kind of a universal type of human story. This kind of tale exists all over the place. It exemplifies the importance of patience, of not rushing to judgment, of not having an ignorant opinion just for the sake of having an opinion. You know, far away from the Middle East, the Chinese have told a similar tale for quite a long time. It goes like this. Is a Chinese peasant, and this Chinese peasant has a son who he loves very, very much. Now, this man also owned a fine white horse that was universally admired by everybody. Now, these were the two most important things to him. But one day, the horse escaped, and his neighbors pitied him, saying, it's such a horrible thing that your horse has run away. The man responded, Well, maybe it's bad, maybe it's good. Now the next day, the horse came back accompanied by 12 more horses. The neighbors remarked that this was such a great stroke of luck. The man responded, Well, maybe it's bad, maybe it's good. Then the next day, his son rode one of those wild horses, and then he fell off and he broke his leg. The neighbors talked about how unlucky this was, and the man responded, well, maybe it's bad and maybe it's good. So a few days later, the emperor's army entered the village and began to conscript men for an upcoming war but they didn't want the kid with the broken leg. So now the neighbor spoke of his good luck. And of course the man responded, well, maybe it's bad and maybe it's good. And so on. It can go and go and go and go. Now that's a non-religious version 
of the Al-Qadir story. Sort of. Because it's about random chance, you know, rather than an active planner like God. But it is kind of the same concept. Now, you could easily take that and change that into a religious story. And then change the outcome from neutral to positive. Now, just to clarify, this is just a comparative. I'm not saying the Quran stole this story from the Chinese. It's just a similarity, as was probably the case with so many other origin theories of this story, some of which go all the way back to the Epic of Gilgamesh. So, where did the story come from? If you're a Muslim, the answer is pretty easy. It came from God. It's in the Quran. Where the heck else would it come from? But you know, non-Muslims have a zillion different theories, some of which are interesting, but none of which are definitive or terribly convincing. So I think we can just call it a cool story and leave it at that. I can't help but notice it has sort of a New Testament quality to it, the Al-Qadir story, not the Chinese story. <laughs> you know, it just seems like a Jesus-style parable. And that is the end of the section on Moses. So next month, unlike Moses, we will enter the promised land and get into the age of conquests and kings and all that. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.